0: I'm Evans Maratis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest today is Annalisa Papano, viola da gamba player extraordinaire, and the founder and artistic director of the Catacoustic Concert of Cincinnati, and for that matter, of the world. We're going to be talking about several things, but in particular, early music and some of the misconceptions that surround it, the wonderful Interlochen Arts Academy and National Music Camp, and her favorite restaurant in Cincinnati. Annalisa, let's go way back and can you share one of your earliest musical memories of anything?
1: Oh my goodness. Oh, I suppose I had a Bee Gees record player and putting on oh, was it Joe Tex, singing mm-hmm. I gotcha and dancing. <laughs> I don't know. I had lots of great records and kind of a mishmash. Um Orchestras, one hundred and one strings, kind of stuff that I would look at now and think, "Oh my goodness, I listened to that."
0: So in my house, in my house, my dad's record collection consisted of lots of musicals, a Mario Lanza record, uh, two Arthur Fiedler records. I mean, it was again this completely eclectic mishmash of of recordings, and that I ever got involved in classical music is also rather remarkable, but. Serious, what we would call concert music, takes a hold of you fairly early. When? What are your musical beginnings as a performer?
1: Well, I began piano lessons at the age of four. I think my mother always wanted to play piano, so um, she was the oldest of six. She didn't get that opportunity, so she gave it to me. And I think that's a really great foundation for everyone to come to music. Uh, just You get a really great understanding of how music works, uh, you get a great foundation when you start with piano. And then in the schools, uh, I think in fourth grade, I began violin. Uh, so that's, that's how I kind of began my musical life.
0: With that comment about the piano, I think it's worth expanding on it because I know in my generation, which is one even older than yours, uh, there used to be a piano in nearly every household. It was sometimes just glorified furniture, but someone in the family played it, or at least could plunk out a tune. Even in my grandmother's household, and she didn't read music. She was pretty good playing music by ear. What are the benefits of playing the piano at an early age? The, is it the left-hand, right-hand coordination, learning how to read music that has more than one set of notes? I mean, what are a couple of things that s- I'm, stay with you?
1: I'm, I'm sure there are many many benefits. I, I think it just really gives you a good understanding of just how music works structurally. Um, there's something about the hand-eye coordination, reading uh, two staves at once. Uh, I, I just think it does something to your brain, in a good thing to your brain. Uh, don't tell my husband that. He's a pianist. Um, <laughs> but uh, it just, it gives you a really good understanding of basic structure of how music works, understanding the bass and the treble and then the inner lines.
0: Mm-hmm. So I took some piano lessons as a child, and then I went to what I would call a fixed-pitch instrument, clarinet. So, you know, C is C. But going to a stringed instrument uh, where there are, no, there are no keys, and it's basically put air in the instrument, push down a key, you get it out. What were some of the complications for you at first of understanding how one makes the violin speak? Because one arm is creating the tone with the movement of hair across a string. And the other hand is figuring out a pitch and you have no little marker that says that's C, that's D, that's E. And not only that, but with four strings, C can be in several places. So what are some of the early things that you remember from of either learning, the, learning of stringed instrument or struggling <laughs> with a stringed instrument?
1: Well, I think it was probably easier for me because I had spent so much time with music. And I know that my teacher was really excited about me because I had a good ear. Mm -hmm. And I think that is not something that's necessarily just you're born with that. I'm sure one out of a million people or you know whatever the number is, is born with that. But I think it really just comes with spending time with music and thinking about music and making music. Um, But actually, music educators put a lot of thought into this. And so, I'm sure when I began violin, I had tape down. I had little tape frets. This and is
0: C, an inch farther is D. <laughs> yeah, so you'd have
1: tape down where your fingers were supposed to go so you could see it. So then it's not, um, I think minimizing the things that you have to think about when you learn an instrument is, is best. Uh, if you have to think about too many things at once, then uh, your, your brain and body can't handle it.
0: Yeah. Did you like practicing?
1: no. (laughs) No, no one likes practice. Well, now I actually, I kind of enjoy it. Um, But I think I liked playing and dabbling at it. And um, actually, I have a a five-year-old right now and she's taking Suzuki cello uh, lessons. And I'm the practice parent. And that's our biggest battle is actually setting aside the time to practice. And of course, Mommy, I don't want to. Well, I actually don't want to either. But, but it's there's something about that that discipline. And once you begin, and the 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 routine of it, there's something that that feels really good. Just um, getting into that zone and and repeating things and and Sounds making like yoga. noise.
0: It does sound like yoga. I mean, where you're where you're moving into another space. You're shutting out the world around you. Your cell phone is someplace else, hopefully. Well, hopefully. Yeah, exactly right. And um, and there's only the task at hand of making that tone more round, making that pitch more true, making that arpeggio more even. All of the things that you, as it were, would shed when you're practicing.
1: Well, it is physical and mental exercise. I mean, there is that aspect of really having fun and making making music, but it is training your body and training your mind that's what practice is
0: when you were pregnant with your daughter did you uh, sense that uh, she was enjoying your practicing enjoying your playing did did you have a did you have a musical (laughs) musical child on the way
1: (laughs) well I know I told myself that I did. I, I told myself, oh, she likes this note. Oh, my daughter is obsessed with organ music. In fact, I just wanted to listen to organ music all the time. But I think that had more to do with me. <laughs>
0: well, organ music is probably uh, a little healthier than pistachio ice cream, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but I know that um, I like when I would play and my instrument would hit my belly, especially later in the pregnancy um, it would, it moved my instrument. Like, when I would hit certain low notes or certain certain notes, I would feel her kind of kick out. And you could, there were a few times toward the end, and I was, I was playing until the last week, um, that, uh, you know, it, I had to be very careful because she, she would kick. You could have
0: percussion accompaniment where the composer never wrote it. Yes, <laughs> yes,
1: so that was amusing.
0: So you begin by playing a stringed instrument. And eventually, uh, you decide at some point that it's going to be a professional life for you, or does it simply overtake you?
1: Hmm. Well, it's just how things happened. Um, I went to—I know there was a point where it became clear, the direction in my life. I went to Interlaken Arts Camp, and I had the choice. I was really interested in science and environmental science, and I would won this national award, and I had the chance to go to Washington, D.C. for the ceremony and for some other activities there. And it was a really, really big deal. But that same summer, I got a scholarship to go to Interlochen. So I had to make the choice. And I, I don't know. Um, I think I would have been happy with both because both were kind of— the way my mind works both were very creative and um, engaging other people in an entertaining way so um, i think it just when i made that decision that's kind of what determined the direction my life would go
0: interlaken is an amazing place for those of our listeners who don't know about it it's a music camp in the summer and a, a full academy in the fall winter and spring a little bit like a conservatory. Well, Perhaps it's a little bit like our own School for Creative and Performing Arts here and that there's a full curriculum offered to the students. The only difference is it's in the frozen north of upper, upper lower Michigan, as it were. But you were there in the summertime, right? But yes, and the, and the academy. And the academy as well. What was it like? What was it like studying there?
1: Well, The summertime was so exciting, and that's where I first learned the instrument that I play professionally now, the viola da gamba, and it was so, um, I don't know, it was was magical is what it was.
0: Was it the trees and the lake? And the and the intense activity. I mean, did it or was it everything? Because Interlaken, of course, is in a very beautiful setting, uh, not far from Traverse City and Lake Michigan. Has its own couple of lakes within its precincts. Yeah, I
1: still remember the cherries from the cherry festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What,
0: what made the atmosphere special?
1: It was everything. It was especially, I think, what it was for me was my teacher, mm. Mark Sudak, who plays in the Baltimore Consort, and they are a really fun group. They call themselves a Renaissance rock and roll band. <laughs> and they're a bunch of people who were maybe even former rock and roll people who got really into like lute and and recorder and flute and 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 it was this kind of energy that that he brought and his um, his colleague Anne Marie Morgan was the the viola de gamba instructor. They both taught my instrument, but they just had a way of making that music come to life is so cliche, I guess, but it really did. I felt like it related to life. It wasn't this far removed uh, thing. I wasn't in a sea of violins playing this music that didn't necessarily connect to me I I felt like oh well I'm playing with dancers now and I'm playing with a singer and we have an actor reciting poems and and it just was so exciting.
0: So you go to Interlaken with the idea of perfecting your skills as a violinist right? Mm -hmm. How does the viola da gamba which we'll get to in more detail as we continue our conversation how does it enter your life and how does it captivate you?
1: Well, at Interlochen, I went as a violin major my first summer, and I took this course called Shakespeare's Music. And I just remember the first time Mark handed me this instrument, it was like, wow, this is great.
0: So for our listeners who don't know what it is, it looks a little bit like a small cello.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I had the small size, which kind of correlated to the violin. And it was just... Fun. It was like a spark, it was, and it was exciting. Um, and I think it was neat at that time. You know, when you're in high school, everything's kind of so uh, well dramatic. And I got a lot of attention, and and it just felt it made me feel very special. You were cool. And yeah, and it just it just felt like I found my voice. It was so much fun, and. Um,
0: yeah. So although it might have been easy for me to ask you to bring your viola da gamba here today and demonstrate for us, try and describe, as you if you would, in words, the difference in the sound of the instrument you left, the violin, and the instrument that's yours now, the viola da gamba. What's the difference in the sound if we heard it?
1: Well, um, it's pretty clear, actually. The violin has a very intense, very even, uh, powerful sound. And... I remember at one point my violin teacher saying, this does not work with you. you. You don't even, you need to change even the way you speak, the way you you stand. Uh, you're, you need to speak differently. Uh, and maybe that's true because I was a shy person or I don't know, who, who knows. But um, the, the way that my personality worked didn't quite work with that. The violin is very, very powerful and it's, it's beautiful, of course. Um, but the, you weren't the
0: next Hillary Hahn, no, that sort of driven, and, intense, gotta succeed at any cost kind of person. And uh, that's no criticism of Hillary Hahn because that's one of the things that makes her a great violinist she has she has almost this sort of jet engine drive to her personality,
1: and the viola da gamba is very vocal and not necessarily vocal as in the way you think of, like uh, an opera singer today singing this huge, powerful um, line that just kind of carries forever, uh, or Verdi, but it's vocal in the way that one speaks. It's very um, you know, uh, oratorical, very coming and going of the voice, very speech-like and very communicative. And uh, But not as
0: commanding as if it's, a, it's not an army general of an instrument, is it?
1: No, but it can. It can be. Um, there are pieces by this composer named Tobias Hume, and he has these soldiers songs and they're really fun and so I like that but I like that um it it goes with my personality I think and it's very supportive and and nurturing of working with others and I like that aspect of communication and the violin is like that too but just in a very different way yeah
0: yeah but along with the instrument of course You don't play the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto on a viola da gamba. You don't play a Beethoven violin sonata on a viola da gamba. Along with this instrument, because it comes from an earlier time in the development of music, comes an entire repertoire. Mm -hmm. So in addition to, as it were, taking it out from under your chin and holding holding your instrument now upright, a whole new world of repertoire opens up to you. Tell us a little bit about your early discoveries of this earlier music that has become your life now
1: well what i first played was really great and fun like music from shakespeare's time really Uh, music that would have even been performed in the context of some Shakespearean plays. Early Spanish music, which was fabulous. Sephardic music, which was sexy and jazzy. And, and also, the earlier you go back and looking at notated music, the less information you're given from the composer. So you're allowed a lot more creative license. I mean, theoretically, you do that in a knowledgeable way, so you know what you're doing. But, um, you know, if you look at today, you know, some music that's been composed in the last 100 years, there are notations for everything, for types of articulation, for um, all kinds of different ornaments, for everything, for dynamic. And there's less and less of that the further you go back. So I like being able to make some informed decisions.
0: It's really like jazz. Oh,
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, in jazz, of course, you have chord progressions, you have a melody, but then you have all of this opportunity to create a 32-bar 32, uh, 32 solo, a two-minute solo if you want to. As long as you, as it were, keep the, the overall harmonic progression of the song, as it were, somewheres in the background, the world's your oyster. And this is what you began to discover with this music as well. Well, I think it's isn't it? I think it's also important for our listeners to understand that this is not a, this music is not a free for all. One of the things I think that's fascinating for me about the early music performers I've gotten to know over the years is that they have to be really smart. They have to learn. That's not to say that modern instrumentalists don't have to have a great deal of intelligence, but as you say, so much more is on the page for you as a a player of a Mahler symphony, let's say if you're in an orchestra. But if you're going to be playing early instrumental music with very little notation on the page, so much of your knowledge has to come from study, does it not? And learning whatever we can learn about how people did this music in those days. And so there are rules and there are guidelines, but they are guidelines, right? They're not slavish instructions like this note must be articulated with the last finger picking against your fingernail. It's not like that.
1: Absolutely. And I teach at conservatory here in Cincinnati. And um, my students who come to class, um, at first, they're kind of paralyzed with having to make decisions based on what I teach them, because they're used to doing what their teachers tell them or what's on the page. But theoretically, as, as time passes, it can be so rewarding and freeing to be able to make some informed choices in music.
0: It gives you more of a sense of fantasy, too, about everything you do, I would imagine.
1: And a sense of ownership, as yeah. well. And that it's coming from you, as, as well. You're a partner with a composer.
0: Okay. So, becoming a specialist in the viola da gamba is a little bit like graduating from the undergraduate program at a university with an English degree. In other words... How do you make a living? <laughs> so what's the path to professionalism for you in a field that is smaller than the field of orchestral music, let's say, in this country or for anywhere? I mean, you're playing an instrument whose repertoire is earlier than most of the core repertoire that most people get employed for. Um, how do you become a pro? How do you make a, As you say, can you make a living at that?
1: Well, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's hard for everyone in music to make a living. You have amazing opera singers who are calling it quits because it's just too hard. And the life that you live is hard. As you know, with Cincinnati Opera, you know so many amazing artists. And that life of traveling and working like that is really intense. I think a lot of music students don't realize after they train their minds and bodies, what is life going to look like? What is life going to look like if you want a family? Uh, what is life going to look like when I'm 40 or 50? And am I still going to be wanting to you know, stay in a hotel for a month or two? Uh, well, for 11 months a year, 12 months a year? Um, as a viola da gamba player, um, there are not many people who... At least in the states, um, who are making a living as a viola de gambo player, it's it's a pretty specialized thing. A lot of people also play baroque cello, and they'll play in orchestras, mm-hmm. or they'll teach and you know, teach modern cello, or teach something else, or have another job. So, yeah, it's 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 a challenge. Um, I'm fortunate in that I've always been kind of concerned about what's my future going to be like? And I want to be practical. Um, I ended up after university moving to Seattle, where uh, there are a lot of people in early music. And it was pretty good. And I, I thought, you know, I can live like a bohemian for a long time, as long as I have music in my life. I can have temp day jobs. I can... I can be a secretary, I can work as whatever, as long as I can still play. And then I ended up coming back to Cincinnati. Um, well, actually, my, my first time living in Cincinnati after that. Um, and I decided, okay, there are not other people in early music here. I'm going to have to figure out how I can keep music in my life. Because if I don't create some kind of opportunity... You know, what's to motivate me to practice? I don't want to play by myself for the rest of my life. So um, since I was a kid, I was always organizing shows, you know, talent shows with the neighborhood kids. Uh, so it wasn't a big stretch for me to do a concert. I moved to Glendale, and I did, the first week after I was living there, I did a concert at the local community center.
0: Wow. So, is this how the catacoustic consort is eventually born?
1: It is. That was my first catacoustic performance.
0: So, out of the desire to simply make music with others and keep music in your life, you turned the idea on its head. As opposed to looking for work, you decided, I'll make work for myself Absolutely. and create your own ensemble. So, tell us, if you would, a little bit, what is the catacoustic consort?
1: Well, catacoustic. Uh, people wonder, what is that actually? What does that mean? Is that a word? And it is a word, actually. It's in the OED, um, and it means reflecting sounds. Yeah. But I really I like the word because uh, it makes people wonder. It's not some word in French or Italian, which would have been far too easy. Um, but Well, for me. But then people are, think, how do I pronounce this? And mm-hmm. does that mean I can only play French or Italian music? And then people wonder, does she like cats? Is it cat <laughs> gut? What is this? Um, I don't know. Now, maybe looking back, if I were starting a group now, I don't know, I would still choose the name, but it it seems to stick in people's heads.
0: So what is it made up of?
1: It means reflecting sounds. Mm-hmm. And it it's made of me, and I have a few core members of the group now after, this is my 17th year, and now I'm, I'm beginning. And uh, we have some core members, they're not in each performance, but we have some people that are just a part of the group. So um, we have Elizabeth Motter, who is a fabulous Baroque harp player who lives in Cincinnati. Uh, Melissa Harvey, who's a soprano, also here in Cincinnati. Um, one of my best friends who I actually met at Interlochen so many years ago. Joanna Blendolph is a viola de gamba player. Um, David Walker, a really fine Theorbo player, Michael Leopold, another Theorbo player, and we have our favorites um, that we really like to, to bring back. And I think it's always inspiring to work with new people and to, you know, who's the, the new hotshot or who who can we learn from? Uh, and and uh, maybe not do always the same kind of music, but bring in a new perspective. Um, every year, for instance, we try to feature a new instrument so people can get a sense of that sound world or that amazing talent. Um, last year, it was Japter Linden, who's a phenomenal Baroque cellist. And we've had Baroque oboe, Baroque bassoon, cornetto. Um, it's, it's really fun to have a variety and then have our favorites and then have people we can learn from and, and develop a relationship with.
0: One of the fascinating things about going to one of your concerts is to look at the instruments arrayed before you. And everything looks familiar, but different. And as someone who, let's say, may have only gone to a Cincinnati Symphony concert and seen the modern orchestra with its codified retinue of instruments that have been the same way for at least 100 years, violins look like violins, cellos look like cellos, violas, and so on and so forth, then they come to a catacoustic concert kind of acoustic concert concert. That's not mm. easy to say. <laughs> and you see, you know, you see a chitarone, which is, you know, or, uh, or a theorbo, which looks like a, well, it looks sort of like a guitar, but then all of a sudden it's got a neck about a three and a half spoon. feet long. <laughs> yeah. And you see, I mean, the harpsichord is a familiar instrument, but then you see these various versions of what we would call a cello, the viola da gamba, and Even the double basses are somewhat smaller. The wind instruments look a little bit like things that we know, but not. And you see something that looks like a recorder that all of a sudden sounds like a trumpet. I mean, for me, one of the great things about going to an early music concert is the world of sound. That especially when you play a piece of music, let's say you move all the way up to Bach and you play something by Bach. And we're used to hearing Bach, let's say, played by a modern orchestra. All of a sudden you hear it played on instruments that Bach himself would have heard. It's a whole new world. It's as though someone has reinvented the music for you to hear afresh. I'll never forget the first time I went to hear a Brandenburg concerto of Bach. You know, which if you know anything about classical music and listen to public radio you hear the Brandenburg concertos all the time. And the first time I heard the Brandenburg concertos one of them played by an authentic instruments ensemble I was blown away. It's like, this is what Bach must have heard. And it's all the tunes are familiar, the music doesn't change. But your whole sound world is opened up like a flower to say these colors, this, this kind of nasally quality to this and this kind of more rounded quality to that, the piece is new again. That must be one of the exciting things for you to do is to even, you play a lot of music that we've never heard before because you're d- rediscovering music from us from an earlier time that we probably haven't been familiar with. But then you come to a piece of music that we might know and do you ever get a chance to sort of glance out at the audience and see the looks on people's faces?
1: Wow. Because
0: um, you'd yes. find me grinning from ear to ear yes. at any one of your concerts. And, and
1: you know, it's not to say that a performance that the CSO would do of Bach is wrong. No, it's It's not, just a different it's thing. Different. It's sometimes when you uh, use period performance technique or these instruments, it unlocks secrets to the music and it, it, it kind of presents itself in a new light and uh, for instance we did some a few of the or I guess one of the Bach cello suites last year and it was phenomenal and there were a lot of cellists out there and they loved it. Um, It's just a different thing. Uh, I don't think that one way is valid and the other isn't. It's just it's a different different creature.
0: Well you've touched on something very important because I think a lot of people when you say early music First of all, I don't know what you mean. Mm-hmm. But secondly, there are a lot of for them for, for those who know even a little bit about it. There are some misconceptions about it. What are what are some of the common misconceptions you've come across?
1: Well, the term is not ideal. I mean, no. it doesn't mean kids' music. Doesn't mean the Beatles. Um, early in the morning music. Uh, I guess common mis conceptions I mean you know there are a lot of people who do quote-unquote early music and you'll probably find some of that you'll find a a lot of different things everywhere um and everybody brings their own bias to music performance and some people would say oh well it's just not appropriate to perform Bach in that way um I mean I think you'll find you'll find everything everywhere Mm -hmm. um but I I like I just like the um, an educated musical approach to all music. Um, I think the the problem is with early music is just that it's not a well defined term. What where does it begin? Where does it end? Right. Um, what I like to think of as early music is I would just say that I play the viola da gamba. I play music for my instrument, and I try to play it. In a pretty way and have fun,
0: but in general, is there a, a, a rough time period where music for your instrument exists in profusion? Are we talking about mu- if we have to put dates on it? Is it basically, let's say, fifteen hundred to seventeen twenty? I mean, where are, mm-hmm. where what's the what's the accordion of the of the chronology that for music that your ensemble plays generally.
1: Uh, I would say generally 1500 to like 1770 or so. Um, so we're
0: talking about then the end of what we would call medieval history. What we have all, These are all labels, of course, that have mm-hmm. been applied since these events happened. The Renaissance, the Baroque era, Rococo, which is sort mm-hmm. of sitting side by side. And then just as we're beginning to look like what we would call classic music. So just before Mozart. yeah, Just at the end of Bach, just as the world is changing once again. Absolutely. That's... Uh, that's several hundred years of music so you must have an enormous repertoire from which to choose.
1: We do it's fabulous Um, and the nice thing about my particular instrument the viola de gamba is that it was played for and by people who had money and so that means that these people had money to pay for composers, they had money to pay for instruments, for the paper for the music to be written on and there is so much of it and I mean, of course, not all of it is fabulous, but a lot of it is just phenomenal. And it's really fun every now and then you hear of new discoveries of of, of music for da Gamba, some unaccompanied Telemon, for instance, just um, a couple of years ago, which are well, lovely. And
0: you know, and I think when we live in this information-saturated age, one of my happiest memories of recent years here in Cincinnati of going to concerts was going to hear a concert that the Catacoustic Consort performed, and it was, for all intents and purposes, the modern premiere—or maybe the world premiere—of a piece that was written over what three hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. It had been undiscovered or unperformed, and we were hearing it for the first time live. What three hundred years after it was written? Yes,
1: yes. It was a piece by Marc Antoine Charpentier, who's becoming better better known these these days um, but he wrote it for a man who was inviting the king to his house for a big celebration he basically He's wanted to money curry favor, right? yes yeah. he wanted the favor of the king and the king canceled at the last minute oh. so he sent everybody home and invited the neighbors over to, uh, eat, to the eat the
0: food <laughs> <laughs> but the music was never played
1: absolutely wow
0: so how did you discover it
1: well, I'm friends with a Charpentier scholar. and oh, I thought you were going to say you're friends with Charpentier. <laughs> yeah. That would be quite a trick. <laughs> in my dreams. Uh, but uh, I'm a friends with uh, a man named John Powell, and he helped us years ago with an, another beautiful Charpentier opera performance. And we've been in touch, and I, I was thinking, it would be nice to do another. And I contacted him, and I was trying to figure out what would be appropriate. And he said, well, you know, there's this piece that's never been done, and why don't you do that? And we did. Wow.
0: Speaking of something that's never been done, um, in 2014, Cincinnati Opera produced its very first ever Baroque opera. Cincinnati Opera has been around since 1920, and it's not as though Baroque opera had never been done in Cincinnati, but we'd never done it. Um, and in part, I think uh, we waited for all sorts of very good reasons because— In music hall, Baroque opera would be lost. It would be like hearing it through the wrong end of a speaking trumpet. And I'm just grateful that we waited until my tenure and when the conditions were right. First of all, a theater of 750 seats, large even by Baroque standards, but still a little bit more manageable to hear this more intimate music. uh, The right piece and the right collaborators. And our collaborators, of course, were you all the Catacoustic Consort, joined by, I would say, early music-friendly members of the Cincinnati mm-hmm. Symphony, who like to, to, uh, as it were, stretch back into history. What was that experience like, playing a, playing a Baroque opera for the first time in Cincinnati?
1: It was wonderful. Um, you know, you asked earlier about misconceptions about early music. I think people, they have this image of what old music is, and it's very sterile and very clean, and and all polite sounding, and it's all kind of boring. But that production of Callisto was hilarious, and it was exciting, and people were laughing. And and it was sexy, too. (laughs) It was. It was. I, I think people have this whitewashed feeling of what the past was like. And, you know... Not much has changed. I mean, granted, our music is a—it's a response to you know societal and political things that are going on at the times. But you know, not much has really changed.
0: People have bad marriages. People mm-hmm. are lovelorn. People are looking for love. People have political problems. People have relationship problems with their children. I mean, you're right. Nothing much changes. Mm-hmm. My favorite memory from that summer was after the summer was over and someone came up to me and said I love that new opera you did in the little theater and he said man (laughs) that wasn't a new opera I said that opera was written in the 1600s he said sounds like it was written yesterday it was fantastic and for me that was the greatest compliment we could receive for presenting a baroque opera because you hit the nail on the head all the, all the problems, all the joys, all the sorrows are the same. It's just a different situation. One of the things that pleases me so much, though, is that it's begun a tradition for us. And in the summer of 2018, we'll be doing our second baroque opera and working again with the Catacoustic consort. Monteverdi's The Coronation of Popea. How are these two operas different? Could you compare and contrast them a little bit? Well, Cavalli, first of all, Cavalli's La Callisto, we should say. Yes, yeah.
1: Cavalli's um, Callisto is it's a comedy basically. It it has all of the silliness involved, and Poppea is quite a drama. Um, there are funny bits. There's always that funny character thrown in, but but it's uh, like House of Cards. Oh, opera, it is. It? It's it's political and it's it's dirty. It's it is like it's like a political uh, drama, but political in like House of Cards. Yeah. And and it's well. There it's are some passionate. very not nice people in this yes, opera. <laughs> yes, yes,
0: <laughs> including Nero.
1: Yes, but incredible music as well. Um, La Callisto is very. There are a lot of beautiful arias, and um, even for kind of comical sections, a lot of a lot of arias for that. And Calisto is a lot more uh, drama and speech, but the arias that are in that. Uh, in Pompeii are just spectacular, and there are arias that um, that just stick with you. It's like favorite music yeah. of your life, you know. Uh, well, muro you know. Well, is, I
0: think our uh, I think our audiences are going to love the lullaby, of course, and funnily enough, they'll probably love the very end of the opera, which we now know is probably not by, by Monteverdi, Cavalli, likely. By Cavalli, yes. The famous the famous ending to the opera is mm-hmm. actually by the composer who wrote La Calista for us. Well, And we've got an all-star cast, which I'm very excited about, and the Catacoustic Consort. Working with a conductor whom you know well, tell us a little bit about the maestro wheel you'll be working with.
1: Oh, Gary Weedow, He's one of the most beloved, dare I say, opera conductors today. Um, he specializes in Baroque opera, and his husband is a very good friend of mine and regular member of Catacoustic Consort, Larry Lipnick. Really great viol player. And... Um, yeah, I'm thrilled to work with Gary.
0: So you've got two operas under your belt with Cincinnati Opera. What are a couple of other operas that are in your personal wish list that would fe- maybe feature your instrument prominently or things that you'd like to sink your teeth in as a, as an operatic player?
1: Yeah, thinking of this question, I guess if I won the lottery and I could have my very own huge Baroque Orchestra, um, I love Ramo. Ramo. I love Rameau and just anything Rameau the comic operas, the anything I love Rameau but um, there's actually a piece by Francesca Caccini a, a lady composer and it's um, the story of the Alcino story, the Ruggiero the liberation of Ruggiero and it's gorgeous and it has tons of instruments and like a trombone choir and several Lirones and, and, and lots, of, lots of texture to the orchestra and so I suppose that would be right up there. I'll continue buying list. my lottery tickets.
0: We need to put it on <laughs> Me our mutual too. <laughs> We need to put it on our mutual wi- mutual wish list. Let's just digress for a moment because you mentioned the word rameau, French composer, two other great French opera composers, Lully Graytree to a little less extent. What's the difference between these Italian operas that we have done and the French Baroque operas? Because the countries are not that far apart. But the worlds of music are worlds apart, aren't they? What's a Rameau opera like as opposed to a Monteverdi opera?
1: Oh, that's that's uh, quite a question. Lots
0: more dance, right? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, you know, if you think of of an Italian personality, you know, very oh. I should,
0: Extrovert, very
1: extroverted, and talking about love and uh, very powerful. I'm. Oh, this is a podcast, so people can't see me waving. You know, just being your most but, Italian
0: but, self, Annalisa. Yeah, exactly. But just you know, just think of
1: like um, you know a French person, you know, with a nice long cigar and a, c- or a cigarette and a cigarette holder, and you know, um, very elegant, restrained. contained restraint. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, both music is extremely passionate but in their own kind of characters and I could get into a lot of kind of musical fancy terms but if you just think of you know a French person versus an Italian person that kind of shows um, Mm -hmm. both are passionate but in their own in in their own way Um, so not
0: much has changed in 400 years
1: (laughs) no no (laughs) absolutely not
0: so when you get a new opera uh i don't know if you performed popea before but when you get an opera that's new to you what are some of the things you do in your own preparation as a performer
1: well it's important to understand the musical forces at hand um not you're not always going to have notated in the music in fact hardly ever what instruments you need.
0: Interesting. So in other words, the score does not have, as it were, first violin, second violin, flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and so on so forth, like a modern orchestral score would be.
1: Exactly. It'll have a bass line for the continuo, and you have to decide, well, I want a harp, I want a harpsichord, I want two harpsichords, I want two theorbos, I want... You have to decide. And sometimes even the... um, The material that you would think of as like an orchestra would would be just treble, alto, tenor, bass. And you'd have to figure out okay, I want violin instruments, or I want some cornetos here, or I. You have to figure that out. And sometimes you can do your own little research to be musicologically correct. Um, And you find that out in different ways, you know, in reviews from the time, or. I know sometimes, like, uh, there's one instance um, where you found out scorings, there was a, a cookbook, and, like, the person who was cooking uh, for that particular event wrote down the instruments that were being used. But um, some usually it's just what you have at hand, mm-hmm. um, what is going to be best for your production. I'm sure that Gary and I will be talking, we'll be talking with you about what's What's going to be appropriate for poppea?
0: Well, one of the fascinating things I remember from our work on La Callisto was that you and the conductor and the director let sometimes the text or the nature of that particular aria or moment decide that this particular moment needs a violin sound or this particular moment needs only the low strings because of what was being said and who was saying it. So we get back to your some of the things you said very early on in our conversation about There's a lot left up to the performer. There's a lot of improvisation in the best sense of the word. In other words, making it up for that particular performance because that's what's right for that chemistry of people. Much more freedom. Again, back to jazz. If you're playing a night in a club and normally you have a quintet and one of the guys is sick that night, I guess we're a quartet tonight and someone else is going to have to fill in those lines or you take that solo tonight and that sort of thing. So there's much Mm -hmm. more – the performers themselves have much more license – to make a performance for us, the audience, that night that is absolutely unique, genuinely unique.
1: Yes, and um, it's really, this Italian music is all about text. And like you said, you would, the performers, the musicians would work with the conductor and and the director and find out what works works best. It's mm-hmm. all about texture and colors. And, and Monteverdi is so good at setting text. He's really... It's amazing. It's inspiring. And he'll show you what's appropriate if you if you listen.
0: Mm. Open your ears, mm-hmm. as it were. Speaking of listening, in your life as the impresaria of the catacoustic Concert, how important is the venue itself to the success of the performance? And how do you go about choosing the places you perform?
1: It's as important as the musicians you choose. It's hand in hand with with all of that. Um, our instruments are naturally acoustic instruments, and they're not they're not particularly powerful in sound projection. Um, so it's really important that you have a place where you can hear the instruments, for instance, or for another Occasional issue that you could have is that A space is too live and if you have Music that's really active then that can get In the way you know there's some beautiful Churches and beautiful Spaces here in Cincinnati that I could not Perform at because You know you have have to be very slow yes and With an eight (laughs) second reverb you have to do A certain kind of music or have a certain kind Of sound
0: yeah that's why Bruckner symphonies Work well in churches (laughs) but Beethoven Does not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) On a performance day do you have any Particular ritual that you follow Oh,
1: what a question. Well, I used to.
0: And and now you have a child.
1: (laughs) Now I have a child. But (laughs) honestly, right now, it depends on the people I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Some people like to be rehearsing up until the last minute. And some people like to kind of take off that day. Right now, my my biggest priority is making sure I have childcare, And I I like to be in the space quite early. My instrument has gut strings, and it needs time in the venue to acclimate.
0: It's like a fine wine. It needs to breathe.
1: Yes. And I I think out of respect to everyone, the audience and colleagues, it's important to do my best to make sure my instrument is as well-behaved as possible.
0: We live in the 21st century. You work with a 17th or 16th century set of instruments. Has technology changed anything about the way you conduct your performing and practicing life?
1: Oh, tuners. You get fancy tuner apps on your smartphones, and that's, that can be interesting. Um, you know, one thing that we just haven't gotten right is making strings. Huh. You know, there used to be these string-making guilds, and they, had, they kind of kept their secrets
0: like and the violin makers kept their secrets. I, yeah. We still don't know what the varnish Stradivarius used to make his instruments so special. We've tried, but we haven't come close yet.
1: But we, but we have at least old extant instruments, and it's you don't have a lot of gut strings that have held up over the years. <laughs> uh, so they, they've really kind of guarded their their secrets, and every now and then you hear some breakthrough string, some person in somewhere in Europe has found and, and it's still I, I don't know I think we're still working on that one
0: so for example uh, a string as we know it for your instrument is made out of cat gut right
1: mm, I think no? mine are generally cows and sometimes ram I think that's the new in thing these days people like and ram. so
0: what is it composed of
1: Oh, we won't go there. <laughs> well, it's like sausage
0: in politics. You don't want to know. You like the result, but you don't want to yeah. know how it's made. I Fair have enough. a friend
1: who is really excited about string making, and he said, you know, I have I have the secret. You need to go to the place where they slaughter the animals and get the guts while they're still warm. And, oh, dear. Oh, but yeah, I, don't, I try not to think about it. I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, but um, I don't know. But it might make know. you one. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> You have made several recordings, um, all of them quite wonderful. Um, are there a couple of favorites that if anyone is inspired by this conversation today, they have to, it's a Catacoustic or an Annalisa Papano record you got to have?
1: Well, Catacoustic won a national competition in our second year, and so we got... A recording on the Naxos label of early Italian music of 17th century Italian music and that was early in our days and I feel like we've grown a lot so we've actually decided um, because we have this collaborative performance with uh, uh, with Cincinnati Opera that uh, to celebrate that we are making another recording of Italian Baroque music and it'll be ready right around the time of Popea. so we're so. thrilled about that. Um, I think one of my favorite recordings that I have made is with my uh, my mentor, Erin Headley, with her group Atalante, and when like a gramophone and s- some other big... You know, Diapason yeah, d'Or? Yes. Right. And so that's really exquisite um, Italian Baroque music uh, from around the time of Monteverdi. Mm-hmm. And it's actually um, sacred, a lot of sacred music, which... Um, around the time of the Counter-Reformation, you have these churches that were, they were experiencing um, a loss of attendance, and they wanted to fill their pews. So they had kind of, they had really exquisite music that they commissioned, and almost like sacred opera. You could even Mm. call it that. It was really, really beautiful, lots of gorgeous color, and I think, Actually, maybe that would be on my wish list of Italian opera, it was the, some of the sacred opera, which is glorious. Um, but we, we actually made a music video of some of it, and it's really cool. wonderful. Uh, uh, but I, I would say this uh, Atalante it's, um, Lamentarium CD is one of the, I, that's probably one of my favorite recordings of all time. Mm.
0: You live in a musical household. Your husband is a very fine pianist. Your daughter is a budding cellist. How have your personal relationships influenced your music making? Being married to a pianist and now looking at your child and saying, well, you know, you might be a musician too. Has it affected you at all in your own music making?
1: Well, I don't know that it's affected me. I feel like I have a lot of support, and that's that's important. I think a lot of people might not understand for instance the commitment that i need to have to my music i think it would be very easy to be jealous about time about practice time and so i think in that sense i feel extremely supportive or supported and supportive of my husband and and the hours that he needs to spend um, outside of work you know he wakes up really early in the morning and practices and gets home and practices and I think that's great.
0: There's a wonderful story about Pablo Casals that he began each day not on the cello, but he'd get up early in the morning and play a Bach Prelude and Fugue. And so to have music in the household all day, live music, for me, would be a great joy. We ask every one of our guests a series of questions to end our conversation. And they're a little bit silly, but I think they provide us all a a bit of context that all of our wonderful high-flying, marvelous virtuosos are also very, very human beings. So what did you have for breakfast today?
1: I love breakfast. Oh, it doesn't matter what I have. I love it. I love the act of, of putting it together and thinking about it. Sometimes I get so excited about breakfast, I wake up early to <laughs> have it. And, but I had, I had yogurt and granola and, and, and coffee.
0: Um, are you reading books these days? And if so, is there one or two? Are there one or two of them that have caught your fancy lately? Do you have time to read books with all of your practicing and research?
1: Um, I I don't read as much as I used to, and I find that when I read, it's. It's for for work. Um, I read a book recently, and I, I honestly I had to I had to get rid of it. I saw a friend's Facebook post: "What was the worst book you read, and did you finish it?" And that was kind of, that's on that list. Um, but I'm reading um, a book by a vile player, um, Allison Crumb, and it's really just a technical book. Mm-hmm. But I find it's really helping me in my education. Um, well, as I go about teaching young people or younger. Pl- Twenty-somethings to to play the vial.
0: Um, Do you watch television at all?
1: We don't have a TV.
0: Oh, so you don't. So there there are no television shows in your household. Your daughter is growing up a very civilized human being.
1: Well, we have like computers. We have very small laptops that occasionally we'll watch a Netflix thing on. And I, I tried last night and I fell asleep. <laughs> so we we don't watch too much. <laughs>
0: But you do have a smartphone and you did mm-hmm. say that there's a good tuning app on your uh, on smartphones. Do you have an application on your phone that you like to use?
1: Mm. No. Okay, goodness.
0: My
1: you really are a baroque
0: app. musician, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it.
1: Yeah, I I I don't know. Oh. You're going to have to cut this. <laughs> on the contrary, I think oh. it's
0: I think it's fantastic that you don't have an app that you yeah. use, but you do use a smartphone.
1: I do, and I guess I like Facebook um, because it it helps me keep connected with my friends who are scattered across the world. Um, mm-hmm. And I know it can be uh, it can take up a lot of time, and it can be a little depressing. I find that sometimes I feel a little bit sad after I spend more time on it than I. And I should. Limit your time on but, Facebook. But I love it that I have these colleagues who are, are friends and like family, and I, I get to see their photos of their families and what they're doing. So About I halfway feel- Halfway around the world a lot of the time yeah, too. Yeah, right. yeah. And I like to write letters, um, and most people don't do that. But um, it's a good way of kind of Staying keeping- Staying connected. Yes, keeping connected.
0: When you have that rare date night with your husband, is there a restaurant you like in particular in Cincinnati?
1: Okay, well he doesn't like it. But well no, he does like it. My favorite restaurant right now is Opio. Opio. Opio it's in um, East Walnut Hills. And my favorite food is pie. Sweet or savory. Well, especially sweet. Mm-hmm. But there's <laughs> something that is it's more than food. It's like past, it's memories, it's comfort, mm-hmm. it's
0: the stuff you remember from the happiest times in your childhood. Mm-hmm. If you had to single out one piece of professional advice, I'm sure a lot of great advice you've received as a performer, but is there one piece of advice that you got from a mentor or a teacher that sticks with you, something you pass on to your own students?
1: Just breathe, I suppose. Making sure that um, you know, when you're so caught up in technique and everything else and life stress, you, know, you tend to hold your breath and raise your shoulders. And, I just, um, and then breathing is not even—exhale.
0: So you've answered my next question, Was how do you deal with stress? Mm. Breathe a lot. Opio. <laughs> do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music that you go to still? I noticed you said you had a Bee Gees record player when you oh, were a little girl. Oh, goodness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But um, I I have, I, I'm really, um, I guess I discovered um, an organ player, um, Corey Henry, who plays not like, you know Bach organ, but like kind of gospel jazz mm, organ, sure. who I, I found very intriguing. Um, but I do find that often listening listening to music can become work. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes I just like silence.
0: It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Do you have one mentor among all the people who have touched your life, whom you use as a a lodestar when you or you talk to in your mind when you hit a rough spot as a musician?
1: Um, that's a really good question and it, it it changes. Um I, I used to say, well, it was the people who started me out when I was in Interlochen, but you know, I was I was fifteen. And then you get to the point where, you know, you're professional and your mentors are your colleagues. And then I've I've become a mentor, I've become someone who has become those people to, to others. But I found that, you know, I really want to continue growing and developing because you get to a certain point in your musical life, I, I feel like I still want to grow and, and be better. There's so much to learn. And I have really reached out to a few people recently. Uh, one of them is a um, a specialist in the Partesu de Viol, which is an 18th century French uh, a women's instrument, a very small viola de gamba. And
0: never played in public, right? These were designed for ladies to play in the privacy of their chambers with their lady friends around them, correct? Primarily,
1: although Mm. there were a few instances where they they were played, and there was a very famous Paris concert series um, that one of these virtuosos played, but it wasn't an elegant thing to play in public, especially Mm -hmm. for money. Mm and then another mentor is Aaron Hudley, who is the pioneer, the person who rediscovered uh, this other instrument that I play, the lirone, which is kind of a close relationship. It uh, makes to a beautiful sound.
0: Concert. You mm-hmm. used the lirone in the Cavalli, did you not? And well. I
1: will in the Popea. Oh, it's it's uh, it's. Uh, heavenly is all I can yeah. it's it's heaven.
0: It has lots of strings.
1: Mm-hmm. Mine has 14 <laughs> strings, a really flat bridge and it's bowed and you use it to uh, really highlight emotional points in music.
0: Well, it's one of the many reasons to come to Poppea this summer. And speaking of which, as my last question uh, I'm your hypothetical newbie who's going to come to a catacoustic concert concert. I finally got that down. For the first time Uh, What should my mindset be? Never heard any early music at all. I'm coming to your concert.
1: I think it's just important to come being open. Know that each concert is going to be different. We're going to have different people up there on stage. It's going to be a different thing. Um, I don't think you... Music from, you know, 1500 to 1780, from all of Western Europe, we're, we're even doing a concert from 18th century... New Orleans this year. 18th
0: century New Orleans?
1: Yes. So wow. there is so much variety. I don't think you can expect it to sound just like Vivaldi. So I think um, you can expect, hopefully, an intimate experience where you're part of our of the whole experience. Um, it's, it's not like the sound is going to wash over you. You're not going to be sitting down listening to a Mahler symphony. But you can be engaged in part of that listening experience, and, and hopefully it'll be enjoyable.
0: Thank you, Annalisa. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to CincinnatiOpera.org, and please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.